Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A newly elected Illinois congressman already announced he's running for Chicago mayor against Lori Lightfoot. And a bad score for Republicans in New England, the GOP lost almost all of its races in the Northeast. Republicans at risk of losing control of the Pennsylvania State House. Majority in the chamber will remain undecided until at least next week. The Biden administration appealing a court decision to strike down the student loan forgiveness plan. Why did the judge rule against it? In New York, two things haven't changed, the governor and high crime rates in the Big Apple. The masses and Wall Street bigwigs alike are asking her to tackle crime. We hear from a retired lieutenant on what might happen if this goes unaddressed. Election security continues to be a major concern in the midterms. In Mississippi, officials confirmed that state election websites were hit with a cyber attack on Election Day. Mississippi Secretary of State Michael Watson said on Wednesday, quote, Our offices confirmed an abnormally large increase in traffic volume due to DDoS activity, which caused the public-facing side of our websites to be periodically inaccessible. At this time, we do not have confirmation as to where the DDoS activity originated, and more evidence would be required to attribute to any person or group. When voters logged on to the Secretary of State's website to find voting locations and other information on Tuesday, the page said, this site can't be reached. Watson added that his office can, quote, confidently say our election system was not compromised. The midterm elections also decided control of the state legislatures. In Pennsylvania, Republicans are at risk of losing control over the state house. Here's more on the balance of power in Pennsylvania. The balance of political power in Pennsylvania is on the brink. In the November elections, Republicans lost 12 seats in the state house and could lose more. Control of the chamber will remain undecided until at least next week because results in two races are too close to call. In District 142 in Bucks County, Democratic candidate Mark Maffa and Republican candidate Joe Hogan are separated by just two votes. Neither candidate is an incumbent. This is a new district due to redistricting. And in District 151 in Montgomery County, Republican incumbent William Todd Stevens leads Democrat Melissa Serrato by just 26 votes. In Pennsylvania, there are 203 state house seats. Based on election results so far, there will be 101 Republicans and 100 Democrats, plus those two undetermined races. The counties have until Tuesday, November 15th to accept outstanding ballots. And Pennsylvania has until Monday, November 28th to certify the election. The Pennsylvania House and Senate have been solidly Republican-controlled since 2011. While Pennsylvania's Senate remains Republican, the House is close to flipping to Democrat control. That would mean incoming Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro could have a smoother ride to advance his agenda. New England Republicans lost almost all of the races they were part of. In Illinois, shortly after the election, a newly elected congressman announced he's running for mayor of Chicago next year. Here's an election update. In the New England region, none of the 20 Republicans looking for a seat in Washington won their races. Only two Republican governors pulled off a win out of the six New England states. New Hampshire State Representative Melissa Blasek told the Epoch Times that abortion turned out to be the number one issue by a mile, even though the polls said it wasn't. She, like others, say they saw an uptick in a drive by Democrats for new voter registration based on the Dobbs decision. Blasek also attributes the GOP loss in New England to infighting within the Republican Party. 
In New Hampshire's U.S. Senate race, Republican Don Bolduc lost to Democrat Maggie Hassan. Some say Bolduc caused trouble within the party when he said he wouldn't support Mitch McConnell as Republican leader in the Senate. Former President Trump has another take on Bolduc's loss. Don Bolduc was a very nice guy, but he lost tonight when he disavowed, after his big primary win, his long-standing stance on election fraud in the 2020 presidential primary. Had he stayed strong and true, he would have won easily. Lessons learned. The final hope for Republicans in New England comes from a tight race in Maine between incumbent Jared Golden and conservative challenger Bruce Poliquin. The U.S. House race is slated to be decided next week by ranked choice voting. Fair Vote told the Epoch Times that ranked choice voting gives voters more freedom over their voting and allows them to vote on their honest preferences instead of voting strategically. Golden is currently on top with around 48 percent of the vote. Poliquin has around 45 percent. And in Illinois, just days after securing a win in his re-election bid to Congress, Representative Jesus Garcia has announced that he will be running for mayor of Chicago. He posted this campaign video before formally announcing his run. Chicagoans are calling out for help. From crime to unemployment to affordable housing, there is so much uncertainty ahead. Garcia has been involved in Chicago and Illinois politics since the 1980s. By announcing his candidacy for mayor in the 2023 election, Garcia will be competing against incumbent Democrat Lori Lightfoot. The balance of power in the U.S. Senate could come down to Georgia. That's if each party secures an undecided seat in Nevada and Arizona. Georgia's candidates will need to keep campaigning to maintain their momentum. The runoff election will be held December 6th. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more from both candidates' campaign events yesterday. The stakes in this race could not be higher. Senator Ted Cruz joined Georgia's GOP nominee for U.S. Senate Herschel Walker at a rally in Canton on Tuesday. They knew the media would lie about him. They knew they would attack his family. They knew they would demonize him. And he stood up and said, I don't care. I will answer the call. I will stand and fight for the people of Georgia. Herschel Walker! Walker warned Georgians of the risks of complacency, emphasizing the high stakes of the runoff. Because if we sit on the sideline, we will not recognize this country again. They want to change everything about this country. They want to change it. And I said, right now, we got the B team in. We got the B team in. It's time to put the A team in. He reminded his supporters to get out and vote in December's decisive election. Tell your friends to get out and vote. This is the most important election of your lifetime. It's coming December the 6th. Raphael Warnock. Meanwhile, incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock rallied his troops in Atlanta. We know how to win a runoff. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And they're going to throw every dollar at us that they can. Georgia's U.S. Senate race has been one of the most expensive in the nation, but Warnock has largely outspent his opponent. The Federal Election Commission says Warnock raised over $123 million this election cycle through October 19th, while Walker has raised around $38 million. Warnock told his supporters that the very future of America was at stake in the election and urged them to vote. Let's win this thing one more time. Let's build a Georgia that embraces all of our children. Let's get it done. If the parties split the Senate races in Arizona and Nevada, Georgia's runoff election will determine control of the Senate. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
Three days after Americans went to the polls, the political world still remains in a state of nervous apprehension. With the nation's gaze on two western states, Nevada and Arizona, here are the latest numbers. In the Nevada Senate race, Republican Adam Laxalt leads Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro by about 1%. In the Arizona Senate race, Senator Mark Kelly leads Republican Blake Masters by just over 5%. Meanwhile, in Arizona's race for governor, Democrat Katie Hobbs is still holding on to a 1% lead over a Republican Carrie Lake. And in the Nevada governor's race, Republican Joe Lombardo leads Governor Steve Sisolak by about three points. Arizona election officials have told the media that their ballot counting might be delayed until next week. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. But I'm here to tell you the goalposts have changed. In Maricopa County, Arizona, officials initially said the votes would be counted by Friday. But heavy turnout amid voter enthusiasm has caused delays. We've had 290,000 mail-in ballots dropped off at our vote centers on Election Day. Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates says that drop-off broke the previous record by 70 percent, and counting them all up could now take until next week. According to gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, there is a reason for that record-shattering in-person drop-off. That is what's going on. People are so distrustful of our elections that they wanted to hand-deliver their mail-in ballot. And when they did that, we overwhelmed the system. The fate of the Senate rests with a trio of fiercely contested states. Either party can win a majority by sweeping the races in Nevada and Arizona. If those races don't deliver a majority, Senate control will be decided in a runoff election in Georgia for the second time in two years. The high handover of ballots is one thing, but there are still other issues that can prevent timely counting. Additionally, there are 15,000 ballots that are currently in curing status. Curing means to fix ballots with a non-matching signature or no signature. This is done by contacting the person via phone, text, or email to make sure they actually sent or dropped off the ballot. Meanwhile, as the counting continues, Arizonans are waiting to learn who will lead them through the challenges that lie ahead. One such challenge is the scourge of fentanyl, which is wreaking havoc across America with unprecedented overdose numbers. A Mexican national was recently arrested for smuggling more than 70 pounds of fentanyl pills across Arizona's southern border. Carrie Lake reacted on Twitter saying, Know this, I am not at all distracted from the issues. I am currently assembling a team to successfully execute our border policy on day one. That's unless her opponent, Katie Hobbs, has something to say about that. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Some Republicans are already backing Trump, even though the former president hasn't officially announced his run yet. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York has endorsed Trump for the potential run. Stefanik is the chairwoman of the House Republican Conference, the third highest ranking GOP member in the House. In a statement to the New York Times, Stefanik said she was proud to endorse Trump for president in 2024. She added that it is, quote, time for Republicans to unite around the most popular Republican in America who has a proven track record of conservative governance. Trump is set to deliver what he calls a special announcement at his Mar-a-Lago home next Tuesday. He is widely expected to announce his run for the 2024 presidential election. Next, we turn to the Big Apple, where New Yorkers are pleading with Governor Kathy Hochul to stamp out crime. Wall Street bigwigs in the city want Hochul to address crime and taxes. An organization representing them says police are out hustling hard to arrest criminals, but they're not being prosecuted and convicted. We bring on a retired law enforcement officer who describes what can be done on a local level and addresses some concerns that Mayor Adams has. 
Joining us now is Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, New Jersey police detective and the founder and president of Campaign for America. It's a real pleasure having you on today, Stephen. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now that Congressman Lee Zeldin has lost the governor's race in New York, many voters are feeling disappointed and concerned the crime in New York City might not change. What do you think can be done if change doesn't happen at the governor's level? Well, they certainly have a right to be concerned because the crime continues to escalate. Uh, unfortunately, it did not work out, the election, the way it did, but the people can uh, do a few things, at least on a local level. They need to uh, be vigilant. They meet, need to look out for any criminal activity, and they need to back their police. But short of that, I could tell you what is being done is people are fleeing the city. They're leaving. Businesses are leaving. Uh, large corporations are packing it in. And I say this, and I, I've said it over and over again, the day uh, Broadway decent begins to pack up and leave New York City, that will be the end of New York. You mentioned policing and the local level. You are in favor of community policing. Do you think this is an option here? And if so, what would that look like in practice? Well, community policing is time-tested. It works. I help create community policing here in New Jersey, the methodologies that will allow police to be proactive. That is very important, meaning that the, the police are out of their patrol cars. They're walking in the neighborhoods. They're befriending the police. Uh, I remember we set up officer-friendly programs with young people. The cops went into schools. Uh, interacted with kids. I went into uh, elementary schools and had lunch with children. So you build this tremendous amount of trust, even from an early age, with the uh, children in your neighborhoods. In addition to that, interaction with the clergy through community policing, very important. The clergy speak to more people on their days of worship than any politician does in a year. So you build those relationships, and it has a lot to do with the prevention of crime. Hopefully that can be implemented and make an impact here. Now, New York City Mayor Eric Adams blamed progressives for, mi for midterm losses for Democrats in his state. He said polls show New Yorkers are concerned about crime, and he said the ones who should be at fault are those who ignore their concerns. What's your reaction to this? Well, I, I think uh, and believe that the reason why the elections uh, did not go the way we expected with regard to the Republican Party is that the Republican Party has to do a better job in uh, articulating their vision for America, their vision for the cities. Uh, in addition to that, Democrats, for a year and a half, I've seen it myself, were out recruiting a lot of college students, a lot of young people. So uh, between uh, the recruitment programs that Democrats put up, the indoctrination policies in our schools that they advanced for years, that had a lot to do with the losses. So the Republicans have to do a better job in, uh, let's say, selling and marketing their vision. Uh, once they do that, uh, we're going to see a lot get done. And let me add this. Uh, evidence of that is uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis performed very well because he was the governor that took action. He just didn't talk. He took a lot of action, supported the police, supported parents' rights at school district level. So uh, actions speak louder than words, and we need a lot more action from the Republican Party nationally. And now I want to touch on your vision for America that you mentioned here. We've seen an election that had a lot of twists and turns. What can you tell us about this election at the local level? Well, it's an interesting uh, question, and the answer is, is a good uh, answer I have, and that is uh, the school board districts across the country, city councils, mayor races, even on state level elections, uh, Republicans swept. I mean, they just cleaned house with regard to progressives, with regard to liberals and Democrats. Why? Because on a local level, people were paying attention to what? To their children's education with regard to school boards. Uh, they want to make sure their children are going to be educated, not indoctrinated. 
And it goes back to my point about uh, articulating positions, uh, not just telling us what's wrong with the opposition, but what's right with our side. What is the vision? And so uh, we swept on local levels, but unfortunately it didn't reach the federal level as we wanted it to. Always a pleasure hearing from you. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, New Jersey police detective. Great having you on the show today. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Still to come, Texas Governor Abbott says he sent the 300th bus of illegal immigrants off to sanctuary states. We have that and more just after this break. The crypto market industry suffers another loss. Friday, the cryptocurrency exchange FTX announced it is filing for bankruptcy. Company officials issued a statement on Twitter saying its founder has resigned. FTX fell to pieces this week after a three-day binge on deposits. That happened after FTX rival Binance posted numerous tweets over the weekend that questioned the strength of FTX. This is the largest bankruptcy filing the crypto world has seen this year. In addition to the financial woes, FTX is also being targeted for investigations by New York federal prosecutors and the Securities and Exchange Commission. And trouble for President Biden's student debt cancellation plan, a federal judge in Texas has struck it down, calling it unconstitutional. But the Biden administration isn't giving up. NTD's Jessica Beatty has the story. The Biden administration is appealing a judge's decision to strike down the student loan forgiveness plan. The White House press secretary said the administration strongly disagrees with the ruling. She said the Education Department will hold on to all the applications so they can be processed once the administration wins in court. Her statement came hours after federal court struck down Biden's student loan handout plan Thursday. The judge in Texas declared it illegal, saying it's something Congress has authority over, not the president. The judge said in this country, we're not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone. It's fundamental to the survival of our republic that the separation of powers as outlined in our Constitution be preserved. The decision is in response to a lawsuit filed by the Job Creators Network Foundation on behalf of two borrowers. The borrowers claim they were harmed by Biden's executive overreach. They allege the administration was supposed to seek the public's input on the program before launching it. But the White House argues its plan is legal under the HEROES Act. It says the act grants the Department of Education authority to cancel so much debt because of the pandemic. The judge disagreed. Biden's plan aims to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for certain borrowers. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the plan could cost more than $400 billion over the next 30 years. Biden's team says the plan helps bring relief to struggling Americans. But Republicans and other experts fear it could raise the national debt and put more strain on the economy. The debt cancellation plan had already been temporarily blocked by a U.S. appeals court. The White House has vowed to continue fighting. The Justice Department already announced it was appealing. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Texas has now sent around 300 buses of illegal immigrants to predominantly Democrat-run areas of the country in an effort to deal with the influx. Governor Greg Abbott announced on Twitter the latest transportation of illegal immigrants to self-proclaimed sanctuary cities. The Republican governor wrote, quote, 
as President Joe Biden does nothing, Texas will continue taking unprecedented action. Abbott's office mentioned that the state has bused thousands of illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C., New York City, and Chicago to, quote, relieve overwhelmed border communities. Democratic lawmakers have taken aim at Abbott's busing program and accuse Republicans of human trafficking the immigrants. The D.C. attorney has launched an investigation into whether Abbott and other GOP governors are misleading illegal immigrants. There is no investigation into the busing by Democrat-run El Paso. Abbott won a third term as governor of Texas on Tuesday. A judge has just ordered the release of a January 6th defendant. He had been in pretrial detention for 20 months. Ryan Nichols is accused of breaching the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The Texas man was in custody since January 18th that same year. The judge had once denied his motion for bail, saying the evidence against him was strong. The government confiscated one of Nichols' USB drives while he was in custody. Officials also admitted allowing him to use the computer for only a two-week period at a time. The judge found that these policies made it impossible for Nichols to adequately prepare for trial. As such, he ruled to release the defendant. A hearing will be held later this month to outline the terms of his release. The city of Boston will pay over $2 million to a Christian organization for refusing to fly a Christian flag at City Hall. The legal battle that ensued in 2017 ended up going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's because the city approved 284 consecutive applications to fly flags from 2005 to 2017, but then they denied a request to hoist a Christian flag. The Supreme Court ruled the city violated the free speech rights of the applicant based on his religious views. The settlement was announced on Tuesday. It covers attorney fees and other legal costs. The city has now set up a clear regulation for flag-raising applications. A boat captain indicted for manslaughter appeared in court yesterday for a second time. The case involves the deaths of 34 people in 2019 when the captain's dive boat caught fire off the Southern California coast. A federal grand jury issued a new indictment last month alleging that Captain Jerry Boylan acted with gross negligence. The disaster aboard the Conception was one of the deadliest maritime disasters in recent U.S. history. A judge threw out the original case this September on the third anniversary of the tragedy. Boylan faces 10 years in prison for a single count of misconduct or neglect as a ship officer. It's a statute colloquially known as Seaman's Manslaughter. It was designed to hold steamboat captains and crew responsible for maritime disasters. All 33 passengers and a crew member who were trapped in the Conception's bunk room below deck died. Boylan and four other crew members escaped. And coming up, the latest from Ukraine, where are Ukrainian soldiers after Russia's major retreat? And could the abandoned capital still become what one official called a city of death? And Finland prepares for Russian retaliation in its bid to join NATO. But it's not just guns that worry the country. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Ukrainian troops pushed forward and a battle-scarred stretch of the front fell silent on Thursday. That's after Moscow ordered one of the war's biggest retreats. However, Kyiv warned fleeing Russians could still turn Kherson into a city of death. Here's the story. 
This video aired on state television shows soldiers in a square in the village of Sniorivka, about 35 miles north of Kherson city, greeted by residents with the Ukrainian flag fluttering. Moscow ordered its troops on Wednesday to withdraw from the entire Russian-held pocket on the west bank of the Dnipro River. That includes Kherson city, the only regional capital Russia has captured in nine months of war. Mikhail Podolyak, an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky, warned Russia planned to mine everything from apartments to sewers and to shell Kherson from the other side of the river, turning it into a city of death. Close to Sniorivka, in this hamlet on the front line, the guns fell silent for the first time since Moscow invaded Ukraine in February, suggesting the Russians slipped out before Ukrainian troops moved in. Russia's retreat order is one of the most humiliating defeats Moscow has suffered so far. Coming just over a month after President Vladimir Putin proclaimed the annexation of Kherson and three other regions, state media and pro-Kremlin hawks defend it as necessary while acknowledging a heavy blow. Army chief Valery Zaluzhny said Kyiv couldn't yet confirm the Russian pullout. Kyiv is usually silent about its own military operations. But he said Ukrainian troops had captured 12 settlements in 24 hours and advanced four miles. 38 pro-Russian soldiers were buried in a cemetery in Russian-controlled Luhansk. A funeral ritual this week saw their remains laid to rest. The fallen soldiers fought for the militia of the self-proclaimed Luhansk People's Republic. Attending the ceremony were local officials, along with members of the Young Army Cadets National Movement, a Kremlin-backed youth group. An official said the names of the soldiers were still unknown, but they were working to identify each of them. She said their bodies were collected after a swap between Ukrainian, Russian, and local pro-Russian forces. Luhansk is an industrial city in eastern Ukraine located in the Donbass region. It's one of four areas that Russia has declared officially part of its territory. Kyiv and the West have denounced Russia's claims as illegal, and Moscow is yet to control fully any of the four Ukrainian territories. It could be a tough winter for many grain farmers in Ukraine, given the wartime costs and difficulty exporting. They are now getting help from the United Nations to store the produce they can't sell. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization has bought more than 30,000 giant grain sleeves. They will soon arrive at nearly 1,500 farms across Ukraine. Loading each bag can take almost two hours, plus a costly set of machinery, which the UN also pays for. These are airtight plastic bags that can keep over 200 tons of crops from spoiling for up to nine months. Global grain prices have been falling since their peak following Russia's invasion. Ukrainian farmers say they are facing difficulties in exporting grain, but operating costs are higher due to power outages after Russian strikes on the grid. Some farmers say they plan to store their crops over the winter until prices rise. The dream will never die. That's what the makers of the world's largest commercial plane tweeted when it was destroyed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now the company says it's bringing the plane back to life. The company tweeted that the design work is already in the process. The company says it will take about $3 billion in five years to build the Maria, which means dream in Ukrainian. And here's a little bit more about it. It was built in the 80s to carry the Soviet space shuttle, and it has about twice the hold capacity as a Boeing 747. As the war in Ukraine continues, Finland's bid to join NATO comes with some concerns. The country fears retaliation by Russia, and not just militarily. Let's take a look. 
On a rainy day in Helsinki, the Finnish army is building a bunker. As Finland continues its bid to join NATO and as the Ukraine war drags on, the country has been further fortifying its border with Russia. There's growing fear of retaliation from Moscow. Major Pateri Vatanen is supervising this operation. We have an exercise where we are constructing uh, uh, readiness constructions, uh, little fortifications where we practice uh, the, the whole, whole chain. How do we build these things from the, from the beginning to the uh, actual construction? Uh, this is, if I use the word really strong, it lasts a direct hit from, uh, from artillery or a nearby hit from, uh, or from missiles or shots. So it, it lasts tens of kilos of uh, explosives. They are really robust. This isn't just about fears of a military incursion, though. Finland's NATO bid has caused it to fear that retaliation could come in the form of Russia sending a flood of migrants to the border with the goal of destabilizing the country similar to the crisis on the border between Poland and Belarus last year. In the coming months, Finland's government is expected to authorize its border guard to construct new fencing along over 150 miles of its 800-mile border with Russia. They expect it will take three or four years to complete. Residents on an idyllic Danish island in the Baltic Sea feel the war between Russia and Ukraine creeping closer after the gas leaks and the Nord Stream pipelines. The island is Denmark's most eastern point and has strategic importance not only for the country, but also for NATO. Bornholm is a Danish island in the Baltic Sea with a population of about 40,000. It sits at a strategically important location between Denmark's capital Copenhagen and the Russian city of Kaliningrad. When the Nord Stream gas pipelines ruptured near the island in September, residents felt the Ukraine war inching even closer. The, after Russia entered Ukraine, uh, attacked Ukraine, uh, also we here on Bornholm have become more aware that uh, things have changed. As, and as you might know, uh, Bornholm is situated in the middle of the Baltic Sea, at the entrance basically, and we are a uh, corkscrew uh, entering the North, uh, the Baltic Sea, and therefore we have a strategic importance for not only Denmark, but also NATO. So yeah, things have most definitely changed. The Home Guard is a volunteer branch of the Danish military. Since the Ukraine war, there have been more volunteers to the Guard. Training has refocused nearly exclusively on military drills. We are situated with a lot of water around us, so uh, so we are in a vulnerable position and we, we know that. Denmark's military placed two F-16 fighter jets on the island this year and naval activity has increased in the area. Bonholm's mayor says dealing with security issues quickly became part of his job after he took office in January. It's a new uh, security situation uh, on Bonholm uh, because of the war uh, east of us. And, and Bonholm is situated the further, furthest east of Denmark. So we are uh, naturally uh, a place of uh, attention uh, in these days. Following the Nord Stream gas leaks, Sweden and Danish authorities both found that powerful explosions had been the cause. The West and Russia accuse each other of sabotage, but it still remains unclear who might be behind the detonations. Since then, the Danish government has increased security around its own energy infrastructure. 
A special silence was held in the UK today to mark Armistice Day. It commemorates the country's fallen military members and the truce signed between the allies of World War I and Germany. At 11 in the morning local time, millions across Britain observed two minutes of silence. This marked the time fighting ended on the Western Front of World War I on November 11, 1918. Armistice Day is followed by Remembrance Sunday on November 13th. And over in France today, President Emmanuel Macron laid a wreath at France's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. World War I was fought in large part on French soil between 1914 and 1918. It left about 10 million dead on all sides. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, newly released footage shows divers discovering a 20-foot section of the space shuttle Challenger, which exploded shortly after its launch in 1986. And Barcelona businesses are enjoying the post-pandemic tourism boom, but not all locals are glad to see tourists in the streets again. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Divers from a documentary crew discovered a 20-foot section of the exploded space shuttle Challenger on the ocean floor. The divers were looking for the wreckage of a World War II aircraft off the coast of Florida. Footage recorded in May showed the divers finding the section of the 1986 shuttle and removing sand from it. The divers contacted NASA after spotting the large, clearly modern object, mostly covered in sand, bearing the shuttle's distinctive tiles. The find marks the first time in 25 years that a piece of the Challenger has been located. It remains one of the worst disasters in the history of the U.S. space program. A semi-desert region in South Africa is the future home of a station that will help track NASA missions to the moon. Ground was broken at the location on Tuesday. Located about 130 miles from Cape Town, the site will soon be a key part of NASA's history-making return to the moon and beyond. It will include a three-story tall dish and will be part of a network of other ground stations in the U.S. and Australia. Its purpose will be to help improve coverage for critical mission support. The South African National Space Agency will establish, operate, and maintain the station. The site was chosen because of its proximity to key infrastructure, geographic location, and low radio interference. South Africa has made an initial investment of nearly $4 million, and the site is set to come online in 2025, the same year NASA is planning to return astronauts to the moon. The European Space Agency is training its moon-bound astronauts in a special setting, one that looks like a real lunar scene. The training took place in Spain's Lanzarote, an island known for its lunar-like volcanic landscapes. The program is part of an intensive geology training. Astronauts will test practical skills for future voyages to the moon and Mars. Other training will take place in the Italian Blätterbach Canyon and the Nerdlinger Ries Crater in Germany. One participating astronaut said they'll need to identify rocks on the moon while working with scientists on Earth. If they can identify good samples, these explorations could help us understand Earth's history. A successful summer season for travelers in Barcelona wraps up, but some residents aren't happy the tourists are back. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on attitudes toward tourism. Barcelona welcomed 8.5 million visitors in 2019. Then the pandemic brought the city's tourism industry to a halt. But by the beginning of 2022, 
locals had mixed feelings about reopening. For business owners, the return of tourists means the start of a long process of recovery. But for other residents, it means losing parts of the city to tourists. During July and August this year, crowds vied for a spot at Barceloneta Beach. It's obvious that because of the size of the city, it can get complicated. You see it here on the beach with so many people, and then at dusk, people start partying here, and then the restaurants. So sometimes, because of the number of inhabitants of the city, it can get complicated. According to the local council, tourism accounts for about 15% of local GDP and employs some 115,000 people. A local civil platform aims to decrease the importance of tourism for the local economy. The profits earned by mass tourism often help increase social inequality. Both the local economy and the labor market have specialized in a tourism sector that doesn't distribute the wealth it creates. The money stays in the hands of the very few, and the rest of the people end up being forced to move out of town or being exploited in their jobs. A tour guide says she hopes for a change in the city's tourist landscape. I don't like to see hooligans or drunk tourists. I don't like that kind of tourism, to see the city getting more and more dirty and less preserved. Some people may say the city looks clean, but I can see it getting a bit run down. Tourism issues have become a topic of debate for other European cities, including Venice, Prague and London. Andrew Thomas, NTT News. Still to come, a popular Paris department store kicks off its holiday display. Find out why visitors, including even a top model, think it's extra special this year. Tokyo Disneyland kicks off the Christmas season. We'll show you what's happening at the third most visited theme park in the world. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. A tunnel has been discovered beneath an Egyptian temple, and it may lead to Cleopatra's tomb. That's according to Kathleen Martinez, an archaeologist at the University of Santo Domingo. She has been searching for the lost tomb of Cleopatra for nearly 20 years. Now she believes she's made a pivotal breakthrough. Martinez and her team uncovered the tunnel 40 feet underground. It's almost a mile long and connects to the Taposiris Magna Temple, an architectural design experts call it an engineering miracle. The Egyptian coastline has been battered by earthquakes over the centuries, causing parts of the temple to collapse and sink under the waves. This is where Martinez and her team are looking next. Although it's too early to know where these tunnels lead, she is hopeful. If the tunnels lead to Cleopatra, she says it will be the most important discovery of the century. Now over to France, where colorful circus figures, hanging gardens, and playful clowns are the stars of the day. That's as Printom department store in Paris kicked off the holiday season. The traditional window display in the run-up to Christmas brings joy to passers-by. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the details. Preparing for Christmas is a serious business and therefore requires dedication. In Paris, the iconic Printemps department store unveiled its traditional window displays on Wednesday. Oscar-nominated actress Isabelle Huppert and supermodel Naomi Campbell were the guests of honor. Then it's just like extra lights, you know, it's already the city of lights, but then you've got extra lights and it's just magical. But I feel like from what we've been through, 
in these last few years of a little bit of cheer and fantasy and imagination is important. This year's windows feature a circus theme with funny animals and playful clowns. Trapeze acrobats swing around while parrots play saxophone. On his hot air balloon, Santa supervises the circus crew. Additionally, over two miles of green garden lights have been installed along the street. It takes one year of preparation to pick the theme and then work on the dummies. Then it takes three weeks to set up the display. The green lights and green backdrop seem to echo a new ecological awareness for the setup. Printemps CEO says the store is switching to LED lights and his little characters won't dance all night long like previous years. They will have some time off to help the store save energy. We have uh, another strong plan to reduce uh, the time of uh, illumination for our windows. We started already in September 8, uh, turning the store black and dark when it's closed. And for Christmas, we have a special effort. We reduce by 20% the uh, hours of opening of our animated windows. This French tourist who came to see the displays approves of the energy saving measures. Maybe we can turn them off a bit earlier, but we have to keep this magic. During the early evening, when there are a lot of people, and when we see people who take photos of the windows, they appreciate this. The window displays will stay until the first week of January. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Tokyo Disneyland kicked off the Christmas season on Monday. In addition to the traditional Christmas tree, they also had a parade featuring Elsa from Frozen, Mickey and Minnie Mouse, and Donald Duck. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the festivities. Tokyo Disneyland was the first Disney theme park to open outside of the U.S. Nearly four decades later, it's still entertaining fans. Since every season the events change, I try to come over around five, six times per season. So over the course of a year, I think I come about 30 or 40 times. The Japanese theme park officially opened its gates in the spirit of Christmas. I could really feel the Christmas vibe, and it was really fun. The theme park is the third most visited in the world, welcoming nearly 18 million visitors in 2019. What I like about Disneyland is the atmosphere. The cast is very kind, the food is good. You can have fun just by walking around. You can break away from your daily life and you feel you can start anew tomorrow. During the pandemic, visitor numbers plummeted to just over 4 million in 2020. The number of overseas tourists is still lagging behind that of Japanese nationals. But Japan relaxed their entry requirements this October, so tourism is expected to increase. Visitors who have made it here today are enchanted by the display. Enthusiastic fans couldn't miss the first day of the Christmas celebrations. We weren't planning to attend the parade today, but we had the chance to, and it was really nice. A lot of characters showed up. At the end of the parade, the chariot of the beauty and the beast also came. I was really happy. I could see Belle. My favorite character is Belle. The park is still requiring masks and is offering a 20% discount to visitors who receive the COVID-19 vaccine booster or who get tested before their visit. Day tickets for Tokyo Disneyland start from $50. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
It's Veterans Day, and today we take a special look at Native American veterans and their sacrifice for the country. And the NFL is in Germany looking to hold its first regular season game ever in the country. Find out what's at stake. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Among all minority groups in the U.S., Native Americans have reportedly served in the armed forces at the highest rate. In honor of Veterans Day, we will explore why Native American veterans have continued to serve and sacrifice for the U.S. despite their painful history with the federal government. Here's the story. It takes a special person to stay in the military for a length of time. Veterans Day is not only a time of remembrance, it's a tradition of honoring those who had served and sacrificed for our country. While we honor all American veterans from different cultures and ethnicities, not everyone knows that Native Americans have the highest record of military service than any other minority groups, as reported by the Military Times. Go back to co-talkers back in World War I, we're always part of the military. As Native American veterans, we have, we don't get that much to talk about sometimes. Mark Hirsch is a historian at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, who co-authored the book, Why We Serve, Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces. He says there is no single answer to explain why many Native Americans joined the military. Native people served in the U.S. Armed Forces for some of the same reasons that anybody served. Many of them were drafted. Others wanted to explore the world, get a job, or have a direction in life. And I wanted to join the military so I could travel and see different, different places. For, for me, okay, it was lack of needing a job. I just wasn't ready to go to college just yet and uh, thought, well, what am I going to do with my life? In some cases, they were simply inspired to follow the legacy of their loved ones. I come from a, a military background. My brother and my cousin and my other cousin is also in the. Uh, they're also in the military. At the time I went in in 1979, my brother and my uncle was in. However, what makes Native Americans' military service so significant is the history between the tribal nations and the U.S. government. Native people were removed from their homelands. Their their tribal lands were taken away. Yet, Native Americans have continued to serve for almost two centuries. Hirsch says they have deeply held beliefs and unique motivations for their service. And for many veterans, they, they served because they had to uphold this ancient tribal tradition of warfare. They're being patriotic because they were warriors. The warriors are fighters, and fighters will continue to do that as we have a, have a military strong and ready to take on any battle. And that's what we are. We are warriors. We're warriors of whatever we do. Many Native American veterans inherited a great sense of duty to protect their lands. This is still our country. This is still part of our land. This is our land. For many of the people we talked to, um, serving in the armed forces uh, was a way of defending tribal homelands. Because this is our land, and this is what we agreed with the United States government to fight for. Some Native people felt like we have to serve in the armed forces because we have to honor our treaty obligations to the United States. We think about our homeland. We try to be the caretakers of our land. Hirsch says we need to not only honor the sacrifice and courage of Native American veterans, but also the choices they had made and the history they had been through. By all rights, you could say, why, why, do, why would anybody wear the uniform of, of this nation if uh, given, given that very dark 
history, and yet Native people continued to do that without fail, volunteered in the main. In another segment, NTD will explore how Native American veterans' culture and heritage have helped them during their time of military service. NTD News, Texas. The United States soccer team was the first to arrive in Qatar for the World Cup. The team manager spoke about his expectations for the newly named roster of players. All, all the excitement or anticipation leading up to the roster unveil um, is gone now, and, and now it's really about just focusing on the tournament. How would you describe your group of players? Um, you know, it's, it's a great group of guys, uh, really close-knit group, um, young team, but hungry team. It's going to be an exciting group to watch. The United States is drawn in Group B alongside England, Wales, and Iran. The team's first match is against Wales on November 21st. The coach says the team has made its preparations for the tournament, and now it's about the final touches. The team's final roster was announced just days ago. 26 men were set for play in Qatar, but the list is subject to change if anyone gets injured. The remaining members of the complete squad are expected in Qatar by Monday. Surprises on the roster this year include a player who hasn't played for over a year, along with a striker who has never scored an international goal from open play, and the team's number one goalkeeper will not compete. The National Football League says it could have sold over 3 million tickets for its first regular season game ever in Germany. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers face the Seattle Seahawks in Munich on Sunday. I'm extremely excited. I uh, look forward to it. First time uh, playing in the international game. And so uh, it's going to be fun. I uh, look forward to it, man. I, I think Germany has a chance to show the rest of the world what, you know, how they've received the, the NFL and how they want it to be a part of their, you know, their sporting experience and culture possibly someday and all that. The Seahawks will face the Bucks, led by seven-time Super Bowl champion quarterback Tom Brady. The Seahawks were preparing for what could be a tough battle by working on their skills in Germany's Alanons Arena. The game is part of the NFL's international push. The league has already played three games in England this season. Brady will look to enhance his international resume by becoming the first starting quarterback to win games in four different countries. So far, he's won in England and Mexico, outside of his many U.S. wins. The Dallas Zoo has welcomed a baby hippo. Let's have a look at the little one. The mom gave birth on the day before Halloween. Zoologists aren't sure yet whether the baby is male or female. They say the calf weighed between 50 and 60 pounds at birth. Mom and baby are both doing well and have been bonding behind the scenes while dad Gus and half-sister Adana spend time on Habitat. The calf won't be on public display for several more weeks. And more adorable baby animals, a zoo in New York made history with its two new additions. The Rosamond Gifford Zoo in Syracuse welcomed male Asian elephant twins on October 24th. The first calf was delivered at 2 a.m., weighing in at 220 pounds. The second one was born 10 hours later at nearly 240 pounds. Both mom and babies are doing well. The zoo says twins make up less than 1% of elephant births worldwide. Until these two, there weren't any successful twin births in the U.S. 
Americans can mark Veterans Day by visiting a national park for free. The National Park Service is waiving entrance fees at more than 400 parks across the country on Friday in honor of the holiday. The NPS is also offering free lifetime military passes to veterans and Gold Star families whose loved one was killed in service. The free passes provide access to more than 2,000 federal recreation spots, including national parks and wildlife refuges. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 